0: First Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to actually read from chapter 9, verse 24, up through verse 14. And uh, why don't we stand together, we'll read the passage and pray over our time in the scriptures. It says this: "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all uh, ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, no temptation has overcome you overtaken you, except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. so Lord, as we are in this passage that to uh, many of us probably is pretty obscure. It's probably a passage that uh, we haven't memorized or really spent much time meditating upon. Uh, and yet, Lord, here we are, just as, as a church is teaching through the word, we find ourselves in this passage. We believe that it's your word for us today, Lord, that you sovereignly have, have spoken it out and you wrote it down as the, as the authors were inspired to write, Lord, and, uh, and that it's profitable for us. In 2013 Prineville to be equipped and to be corrected and to be rebuked and to be instructed and ready for every good work. And so, Lord, would you do all those things here today? And Lord, just where we especially need to learn today from the Old Testament examples, uh, that, Lord, we would just have fear placed in our heart, a fear of God that would cause us to hate all evil. Lord, I just know that I, I need that fear. More of it, Lord, Lord. May each of us just have a good, healthy fear of you that we might walk in holiness and righteousness for your glory, God. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated, you guys. Well, I wanted to start as we're in chapter 10. uh, First of all, thanking Chad Carpenter for uh, he's really filled in for me this last month. Uh, I've been gone a few times, and with my grandma's memorial and things like that, uh, he, on top of his work schedule and family life, has rose to the occasion to preach for me, probably three or four times this last month, and uh, very thankful for that. He covered chapter eight and chapter nine, and so uh, if you haven't uh, listened to those teachings, you can get online and listen to them at calvarycrickcounty.com. Thankful for that. And so as I was reading through what he had taught and, and kind of that sometimes it's difficult to then teach the next thing if you didn't teach the previous things, um, I was taken back a few verses from chapter 10 to this running passage, a uh, very, very wonderful metaphor given to us by Paul. He often would speak about athletics and how the Christian life is is likened to athletics, especially running or boxing in this passage he says man I want my Christian life to be like a boxer who's connecting with every punch with every hook with every uppercut with every did I say (laughs) uppercut do I look like a boxer uppercut (laughs) you know he's connecting he's not shadow boxing he's not wasting his energy he's he's purposeful with every jab or, or a runner that he's not just in it to you know to maybe go halfway or whatever get getting the poses for the pictures, you know, this runner, he's in it to win the race, to win the race. But there's this incredible alarming thought at the end of a nice warm, fuzzy athletic metaphor. (laughs) And it's at the end of the chapter in verse 27, chapter nine, verse 27, where he talks about disciplining his body in the athletic field of Christianity, disciplining his body, and bringing it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. You know, For Paul the Apostle to write that down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's a very alarming thought. It's a very alarming thought that, that Paul, the apostle, that the Lord specifically sought after on the road to Damascus to convert him and set him up as an apostle to the rest of the world to preach the gospel, and he did that. He was a church planter, extraordinaire, a man with a missionary's heart, and yet as he was running this race of Christianity, he realized, I need to be careful Lest after all this church planting, all, all this stuff that's like, man, you write down what a Christian looks like, Paul the Apostle, right? But after that was all over, he would be disqualified? You know, Second Timothy chapter 2 says that, man, if someone's going to run in a race, you've got to run according to the rules. You can make it all the way to the Olympics. I don't even know where they're at this next time, year. I don't even know when they are. I'm not a big, I don't follow it that great. But uh, was it Beijing or did that already happen? That already happened. Mexico, I'm really lost. Okay, anyways. You can make it that far. You can make it to the Olympics and then not wear the right leotard, you know, or forget to, uh, you know, take your big old and clock necklace off. I don't know, but you get disqualified after you made it to the race because you weren't competing according to the standard. You weren't competing according to the rules. And so there might be a man like Paul the Apostle who ran really hard, but the last lap or the last 10 feet didn't finish strong, didn't finish well. So for me as a preacher, and I'm sure for the elders, and hopefully for you here, this is a very alarming thought, a very sobering passage, that we could preach to others, we could run, you know, with the ball for that 95 yards or 99 yards. And at the one yard line, be disqualified for something and it's all over. Matthew Henry wrote a few centuries ago. He said, a preacher of salvation may yet miss it. He may show others the way to heaven and never get there himself to prevent this Paul took so much pains in subduing and keeping under bodily inclinations, lest by any means he himself, who'd preached to others, should yet miss the crown, be disapproved and rejected by the sovereign judge. A holy fear of himself was necessary to preserve the fidelity of the apostle, and how much more necessary it is to our preservation. Note, holy fear of ourselves and not presumptuous confidence is the best security against apostasy from God and final rejection by him. I'll speak for myself. If Paul is saying, after all this church planting and all this missionary work and all this looking like the exemplary Christian, in the end, I still might be disqualified if I don't finish well Then Rory Rogers should really be disciplining himself and really bringing himself under subjection, and you as well. A good, holy fear—a good, holy fear—is healthy. The opposite of that is that presumptuous confidence. I'm good. I'm good, I, I, don't, I don't need anything else, I don't need anything more from Jesus, I don't need to walk with him, talk with him, be in intimate communion with him, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm good, you know, because this happened in my life, or that happened in my life, so the dealio is done. Man, holy fear is security for us against walking away from God and ultimately being rejected by God. In relationship to God, our perspective is holy faith. But when we consider ourselves, our perspective should be holy fear. A good, holy reverence of God. And we read the passage like Matthew 7, which continues to come up as we speak on discipleship. Where in Matthew 7, it says, Many will say to me on the great day of judgment, Lord, Lord, Lord. I mean... That seems pretty Christian, right? Saying Lord, I mean, give you props for that. Check that off on your good little holy people list. I said Lord, what? You know, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we preach and some other things? I mean, those all seem like, okay, that's Christian, check. That's Christian, check. That's Christian, check. Got the list down, right? And the Lord says this, get away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. You practice lawlessness. You practice evil. Those are very good passages to strike a good holy fear and terror in our heart that we might cling all the more to Jesus. Cling all the more to our lifeline. Cling all the more to what he has done clinging to christ because there is a danger of being disqualified don't be unaware think about it paul says in verse 1 of chapter 10 don't be unaware think about it and he's going to give us a history lesson from israel to show how severe this is how great a potential it really is That we could run the race or carry the football to the ninety-nine yard line or that last minute and be disqualified, and so he says in verse one. Moreover, brethren, and and whenever you see moreover, it's maybe in your Bible it says therefore or the word for that means look back to what I'm talking about, and so we just did that, didn't we? We just did that. We just went back a little bit and we looked at this race that he's running and how man he wants to be careful so he's not disqualified, and so he says. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. There's a connection with the previous chapter here that we need to exercise a self-denying watchfulness. Because all the Israelite fathers that you read about in the Old Testament of the Bible they went through some pretty incredible godly stuff. They had so many privileges, we're going to read, so many privileges of seeing God move in miracles and in might and in power and watching whole armies, like, die in front of them because God just struck their enemies down. They, like, went through some pretty Christian stuff. They went through some pretty radical, like, God's stuff in their life and he's going to say but even even though they went through that so many of them were disqualified you might just notice as we're reading through this five times the word all is repeated five times all of Israel all of our fathers went through these blessings and privileges that God bestowed on Israel and five times Corresponding to that, they all sinned. They all sinned. All of them had great privileges in experiencing God's stuff, but all of them sinned. They were castaways through lust, we'll see. And so he says, I do not want you to be unaware in verse one. Or maybe your Bible says, I don't want you to be ignorant. There's about five places in the New Testament where Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And it's actually all places that the church today is ignorant. (laughs) Go figure. And one of these things is here. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the Old Testament. All right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And yet the church today is very ignorant of spiritual gifts and how to use them within order in the church. Or in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I don't want you to be ignorant of the rapture and the resurrection. And the church is very ignorant concerning eschatology. Just ignore it. And so here we have a part where it says, don't be ignorant about the Old Testament. Now, if I asked you to raise your hand, it was like, how many of you don't really know anything about the Old Testament? Probably most people would raise their hand. For one reason, it's because sometimes it's hard to read, and so you just maybe haven't read it. For others, you've been taught that the Old Testament is obsolete. We don't need it anymore because we've got the New Testament. And I would say that's very poor teaching, whoever taught you that. Because Jesus himself would say that everything that was spoken of from the prophets, uh, from the law, all the way through the prophets from Genesis through Malachi, in that old section of your Bible, it speaks of me. All right, the Old Testament is very New Testament because it's all the shadow, it's like a shadow or a copy of the actual thing. So you're just reading about shadows that are just waiting in expectancy for Jesus to come. And so it's all about Jesus. Whenever you have a hero or something great happen that saves lives, it's picture, it's a picture of Jesus. Whenever you see sin and idolatry and slaughters and all that, uh, you're looking at a fallen condition, something that Jesus needs to come and save. So don't fall into that lie that you shouldn't read the Old Testament. As a church, we fasted for a week this last uh, year, and we read from Genesis through the book of Ruth together. And uh, I have a sweatshirt from a camp where I taught kids about the Old Testament. It says, I read the Old Testament too. You know, we need to be reading the Old Testament too. And the reason is found down in verse, I believe it's 11, because all of these things in the Old Testament happened to them in the Old Testament as examples. They were written for our admonition or for our instruction. So everything that we read back then has been written so that we might learn from their mistakes or from their victories, from their accomplishments. We need to learn the Old Testament and how to apply it to our lives today. And so he, he gives us a bit of a history lesson. Now some of you, if you're like me, totally love history. I've been to where a lot of these things happened over in Israel. Uh, stoked about it. Others of you, you might need to just roll your sleeves up right now and be like, all right, let's get into it, okay? Because Paul wants us to be aware of it, it's time to be aware of it okay he says all were under the cloud what in the world does that mean i mean i've been under a cloud so what's so special do you guys remember in the old testament when god was leading his people through the desert that during the daytime there was this giant pillar of a cloud that led them where to go how many of you have ever had that happen like you know like raising your hand back there all right cool (laughs) bad time to scratch your head buddy no i'm kidding Kevin, can you go talk to Brandon? Okay, maybe you have, but it just doesn't happen all the time. That the Lord led a nation with a giant cloud during the day, and at nighttime, it was a giant pillar of fire. Awesome. A few things about that. It spoke of the glory of the Lord. It spoke of his presence. It was a very comforting thing as you're cruising through the wilderness to During the day, you could always look and know that the Lord was leading. And at nighttime, as you're tucking yourselves in at at night, there was the glow in your room from the presence of the Lord, that he was there, he was near, he was leading. Sometimes he would lead them by night, through the nighttime. Psalm 105.39 says that he spread out a cloud for a covering over the nation and fire to give light in the night So when you have something like that happen, I mean, that's like signs and wonders type stuff. That's stuff that you visibly see God doing and you would be like a part of that and probably pat yourself on the back a little like, oh yeah, I'm really, really like a Christian. (laughs) All right. I'm really in with God because look, see that thing over there? (laughs) That's God. So I'm in, right? I'm a part of this, or the fire at night. Then it goes on to say, all passed through the sea. Man, if you were a person that was part of Israel and you're like running out of Egypt, you're leaving, and you see that the chariots of Pharaoh's army are chasing after you, and you're stuck in front of the Red Sea, you have nowhere to go, there's mountains on both sides of you, there's a giant sea in front of you, and you got Pharaoh and his chariots chasing you down to slaughter you, And you're just like, what are we going to do? So you start whining and complaining. And the Lord tells Moses to stretch out your hands over the sea. And whoosh, the sea, people. There's a sea, an ocean type thing. I don't know if you're following me. But this thing splits in half to where there's walls of water. And you got to walk through that. And a whole nation walks through a sea on dry ground. Have you ever watched Prince of Egypt, you know, some Disney thing or something like that? And they're walking through and they like look over and there's a big whale, you know, like in the wall of water and there's fish and stuff. I mean, you'd be like, this is incredible, right? And probably as you're writing down your testimony, you're like, I'm a pretty darn good Christian. I'm a pretty darn good Jew. I mean, I uh, went through the Red Sea crossing. That's pretty awesome, right? Right? So check another thing off on my list of great things that I've done. Not to mention, once we all finally made it across, the chariots started chasing us through and God caused those walls of water to collapse on the chariots and kill all of Pharaoh's horsemen and chariots. Like, you'd be like, I've seen some stuff, right? I've seen God move. So I should be good. I'm good to go, right? He says in verse 2, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So, these Old Testament people that we read about, they were actually baptized. This is a baptism that's a figurative of the baptism that the Christians in the New Testament would go through. They were baptized. Moses in the Old Covenant, this was their baptism. Jesus in the New Covenant baptizes with water. So I was baptized, you might say. Check that off on my Christian things to do list. Or in verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food. So as they were cruising through the wilderness, they started to get hungry. And they ate manna for 40 years, Exodus 16, 35 says. Until they made it to an inhabited land, they ate manna until they made it to the land of Canaan. Nehemiah recalls in chapter 9 worshipping the Lord. He says, "Lord, you gave them bread out of heaven." That's what manna was. "And you brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in and possess the land." Recall, how did God satisfy Israel's hunger? For 40 years there was wonder bread all over the place. This was literal angel food cake. Okay? In fact, the Psalms Hey, the Psalms call it angels food. I just want you to know. You fed the people angels food. Angel food. It's all a picture of the true spiritual food. All right, so there was angel food falling down. It tasted like wafers and honey. And they would, it's a whole radical, miraculous thing, this bread. You got to go back and read it for yourself. But there was this incredible bread that one day is provision. You couldn't gather it for tomorrow. It would rot. Don't even try. Fresh bread every day. It's a, it's a picture of the bread of life, Jesus. He's the bread. And he's calls himself that. And then he'll even say, remember me my eating bread. The body that was broken. Eat the bread. And so you might say, okay, man, I've been baptized, right? And I've taken communion. You know, remembering Jesus, the bread. So I've been eating the spiritual food. I've been drinking the spiritual drink. In fact, in Exodus 17:5 through seven, the Lord tells Moses. To take some of the elders of Israel. Because all of Israel was very thirsty. And he said go up with your rod. And strike the rock. In verse 6 of Exodus 17. Strike a rock and water will come out of it. That the people may drink. And so Moses did so in front of all the people. Water came out. And a whole nation drank. The picture of the eating the spiritual bread of the manna and drinking this water that miraculously came out of a rock and by the way you can go to this rock over there and I think it's Saudi Arabia if I'm correct this rock is there in the milder milder of the wilderness okay and and it's split in half and it's obvious that a giant stream of water shot out of it and made a lake and it's right on the path right next to the Mount Sinai it's on the way where all the children of Israel drank. So you can check it out, even archaeologically, for yourself. But that rock also was a spiritual drink. It was foreshadowing the sacraments of communion, baptism with the Red Sea crossing. Israel had these ancient versions of these two Christian sacraments that we do today, baptism and communion. The word sacrament was used to to speak of an oath of allegiance that Roman soldiers would take to, to swear their allegiance to Caesar. So too, Christians have often considered communion and baptism to be an oath of allegiance unto Jesus Christ. And the Israelites, they had this type of these sacraments. They had this type of baptism and they had this type of the communion, the bread from heaven, and the drink from heaven. But then it goes on even farther in verse 4 to tell us that that rock that's broke in half, where life-giving water came out, that rock was Christ. Okay, you might underline that. It's a profound statement. That rock was Christ. This is how we begin to understand the Old Testament and have this principle of interpretation. Wherever there was life givingness or a hero or something that was a hero, it's pointing to Jesus. That rock was Christ. Take that literally, but not literalistically. Okay? Jesus isn't actually a rock, a mineral that was there, like, that's Jesus. No, it's foreshadowing that's Jesus. Jesus is the rock, and Israel would always call him the rock, all right? He's the firm foundation that was smitten and beaten so that life-giving water could saturate us, okay? So that the water could, could be poured out upon us. Quenching the thirst of a few million people turns out to have been a peripheral issue to God at that moment. Yes, he wanted them to drink, but really he was trying to get them to look forward to the day when the one would come and be smitten and struck and life would come out of him. There's a picture being painted. So, if we want to just look at these symbols real quick once more. The cloud is the evidence of God's presence The sea is a highway, for the Egyptians it was a grave, and there was a baptism that took place there. A baptism into Moses, pointing forward to the reality of the baptism of Christ. The spiritual food from heaven that came down, it was of spiritual benefit, symbolic of communion. The drink was a representative of all the living water that was poured out of Christ, that is experienced by the people who follow Jesus. Remember, Christ is the rock that was struck, and out of him, life-giving water comes. Do you remember in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and Jesus says to her, whoever drinks of this well water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst And the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Speaking of the Holy Spirit coming to those who believe. Just three chapters later in the book of John, in John chapter 7, it says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will come flowing rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those having believed in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus has not yet been glorified. So Jesus speaks of this living water that comes out of anyone who turns to him for true saturation for that quench thirst to be quenched and I would ask you today as you come into this building are you thirsty are you thirsty are you find that you're drinking of things out there in the world and you just keep having to go back to them and they just never satisfy the same maybe for a little while they taste great maybe for a little while they satisfy but you just find them to be empty Today, you've been brought here to be told, drink of Christ. Drink of Christ. You drink of Jesus, you'll never thirst again. He was beaten so that life could come out of him. And life comes indeed. Drink of him today. The woman that he told that to, she goes, Lord, show me that water. Lord, show me that water. Drink of him today. Just even in your heart, you're like, like a little kid, like, I don't know what this guy's talking about. Something about drinking you, Jesus, right now, and just with like a little kid type faith. I just drink of you, Lord. I drink of you. Bring me that life that Rory just read about. Bring me that thirst-quenching life. Rory, he's talking about the Holy Spirit flowing out of me like torrents of living water. I don't even know what that means, but he read it from the Bible. And Lord, I want that living water just torrenting out of me. The Holy Spirit. Lots of great things that Israel went through. A lot of things that are symbolic of the New Testament privileges and blessings that we have. But there's a danger, he says. There's a a disanger of possessing (laughs) all of these spiritual privileges but that is no guarantee of immunity from the divine judgment of God and perhaps you're here today and I've been kind of doing that checklist thing you know and, and like yeah I've done that 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 and yet there's a danger for you who's done all those things as you think you're immune now from ever walking away from Jesus. He says in verse 5, but with most of all these Israelites, God was not well pleased. Most? Okay, let's say a couple million people in the nation by the end of that 40 years. Guess how many people got to go into the promised land? Dos. Two. Two not even moses got to go in god was not well pleased with these individuals just because they had these spiritual privileges of seeing god move in radical ways being baptized into moses partaking of angel food cake every morning for 40 years you think you'd be in don't you But with most of them, God was not well pleased. And it says their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Another translation says their bodies were strewn in heaps. And if you've ever looked at images of a battlefield, after men battled each other to the death, and there's thousands and thousands of bodies just strewn together, sometimes men would fall and die on top of another guy. Bodies strewn about in heaps. That's the picture that's being used now for all of these spiritual people who stiffened their heart against God on the journey and didn't walk daily by faith. That's the issue. And the book of Hebrews tells us that. We did that this summer. We went through the book together, didn't we? Because they didn't continue on in faith every single day, They drifted away slowly. They neglected this great spiritual life that they'd been given. Many of them indeed fell dead on the journey. And only two men, Joshua and Caleb, went in. I'm reminded of my heritage. Okay, this new schedule of the services, I'm like, what time am I supposed to end? (laughs) Some of you are thinking, 20 minutes ago, okay. I think back to my heritage. I have a very rich spiritual heritage. When I, even before this, but, but to my heart, it goes to when I was 14 years old, church was the most boring thing in the world for me. Like, I'd do anything to get out of going to church, like hide in my cowboy boots. Like, maybe if I don't wear my cowboy boots to church, I can't get in. My mom's like, put your tennis shoes on, we're going. Dang it. And when the Lord took that kind of a heart out of me, and called me to know him personally, it was just so incredible, radical. And he saved me into a group of teenagers who, without their parents, were following hard after God. Teenagers, we'd get together on Friday nights, and we'd read the Bible all night long, and we'd worship, and we'd pray together all night long, every Friday night. That's all we wanted to do, and more nights if we could. Everything we could do. We were at just soaking in the word of God and and preaching the gospel, evangelizing. We had Bible studies in our high school. We'd stand up on picnic tables out in the common area and hundred people got saved one one week there. uh, Not a hundred people, one week. Uh, I remember one time counting out over a hundred people had gotten saved over this course of time through these teenagers at their school preaching the gospel. I had permission in my classes to be preaching the gospel. I had some Christian teachers. God did a radical, radical thing. And then as we grew up and after our whole high school time doing this for Jesus, uh, we were like, let's go to school of ministry. And so we went into school of ministry together. And we went to Hungary together. And we went to Israel together. And we went where Jesus was pinned to a cross. I've stood there. Actually, it's a bus station now. I stood a little bit outside. I do not want to get run over by the bus. I've, I've been inside the tomb where Jesus rose from the dead. I've been in there three times. Okay? I've been at the dead sea i've been where jesus walked on water i've swam where jesus walked on the water okay all of those great spiritual privileges and i did it with my fellow homeboys from our teenage years that love jesus right forever we're going to love jesus together look what we've got 32 people in my school of ministry class and they dropped like flies they dropped like flies One girl, a very dear friend, Scott knows her, was there with me the whole time. Went down to Mexico and was a missionary to uh, quadriplegic, uh, vegetable Mexican kids, changing their diapers up till they were 25 years old, serving Jesus. Now she's an atheist and a happy atheist at that. Guys that in the middle of school ministry were sleeping with their girlfriends, dropping like flies. Guys that now don't go to a church, aren't a part of any fellowship, aren't walking with the Lord, and it's only been 15 years. We got a long road ahead of us. They've dropped like flies. It's not getting any better. It's not getting any better. When I think of my youth group friends and my school of ministry friends who aren't walking with the Lord anymore, I just remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that just because we've had a radical privilege of even going and standing where Jesus stood doesn't mean we're okay. We need to continue. We need to continue. We need to finish strong. You can't have those experiences with God and then practice lawlessness and practice evil. Verse 6 tells us that. He says, all these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. So we want to learn from their bad examples. And the first thing that were showed that where they went wrong was that they lusted. Right off the bat. And actually, if you, if you just skim through your Bible, I've underlined all these spots where they sinned in these areas. It's so frequent. Every page, they would do these things. Every page. And here they lusted. They lusted or they yielded to intense craving. If you flip back to Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 15, it says that this mixed multitude that were among the Israelites, as they're walking along, they yielded to intense cravings, and they said, weeping out and wailing out, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we used to eat in Egypt and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our whole being is dried up. There's nothing at all to eat except this manna before our eyes. Angels' food. Oh, we remember when we were slaves getting beaten, working 20 hours a day. We miss that. (laughs) Remember the and they just they just totally sin has blinded their eyes. They forget that they were beaten and oppressed. Remember the watermelon that we used to eat together back there? You know? I could use an onion right now. All I got is this cruddy angel food cake. What are you talking about? It says they yielded to intense craving. And we don't have time to read the whole thing, but it says as they were complaining, weeping and wailing, everybody going to each other's door of their tent, wailing and complaining about the angel food that they've got. This was what was happening. They were lusting in that what they were doing it says the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused and a whole story goes on to take place but the Lord finally says all right you've been yelling out who's going to give us meat to eat I'll give you meat to eat for a whole month I'll give you meat until it comes out of your nostrils and it becomes loathsome to you because you despised the Lord and wept against me, wailed against me, saying, why did we ever come out of bondage and slavery? Great attitude, people. And so it says later on in Numbers 11 that a wind came out that the Lord brought and it brought quail from the sea and they, ne- they were there fluttering by the camp. About a day's journey, and another day's journey from the camp and so the people went out stayed up all day, all night, and the next day gathering quail. But while the meat was still in their teeth, it says, and before it was even chewed, the wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and he struck them with a very great plague, because there they buried the people who had yielded to craving. Does that seem that bad? I mean, come on. I've been eating these uh you know vanilla wafers, Lord. I could use a little steak, you know. That's it, you know. No, their heart was wicked. Their heart was wicked. They had seen the Lord move in radical ways, and he was testing them. He was testing them. And he saw what was in their heart. It wasn't that they just maybe yeah, maybe a salad or something, you know it was that their heart was wicked and they yielded to their flesh and they let their flesh rule. And Paul says, did the Corinthians, you remember that Corinthians who live by the sea, who've got all kinds of wonderful privileges. You remember that because you're letting your flesh rule. The whole theme of 1 Corinthians is carnal Christianity. They were very carnal. They were very lustful. And he's telling them, you remember what God did to those who lusted after evil things. Then he goes on in verse seven to talk about idolatry being one of their errors. Do not become idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they worshiped things that were other than God and it all started, they come out of Egypt, Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God, he's gonna get the 10 commandments there, he's got Joshua there with him. And while he's up there, he's gone way too long, everybody says. And so they they bring Aaron, right? Aaron says, break off the golden earrings in your ears and in your wives and your sons, your daughters. Bring all your gold to me. So the people broke off their gold earrings, brought them to Aaron. He fashioned the gold with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. And then they said this, this is your God, O Israel that brought you out of the land of Egypt. See this golden calf that you just took your earring out and you watched me engrave it? This is your God. Worship it. Later on, Joshua says, he starts hearing things coming from down the mountain and he goes, there's a noise of war in the camp. And Moses says, that's not the shout of victory but, or defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear he comes down, he sees them worshiping and singing and dancing to this calf, so he gets super hot in his, in his anger, he breaks the tablets, and then he takes the calf, burns it in fire, grinds it to powder, scatters it on the water, and makes the children of Israel drink it. You want to worship this? Drink it! <laughs> like when your dog poos on the carpet and you're like, shove his face in there? You want? Okay. I wouldn't know I don't have a dog, but heard stories about you guys. Mo, or Moses asks Aaron, where did this come from? Aaron tells a lie. Oh, the people were like, make us a God. And, and I threw their earrings and their gold into the fire and out popped this calf. Totally lies to them. But the point is they worshiped something else, something that they wanted. They wanted their way, their time, the way they wanted it to look, and they did it their way. And God was angered. And eventually, thousands of people died that day. The Corinthians, as Chad taught the last two weeks, the Corinthian people were making idols out of everything as well, including their own rights and liberties. The idol of, I should be able to do this, so now it's my God. The human heart is an idol factory, and the Corinthians had made an idol out of all of their rights. And we are no better in Prineville. We make an idol out of anything that walks, moves, drinks, poops in a kitty litter box, drives down the road, grows herbs. It doesn't matter. We worship it and we want it rather than God. Even our family as we studied two weeks ago. Another warning that Paul told them, hey, look back at the children of Israel and you see how not only did they lust, not only did they commit idolatry and worship something other than God, many times. This is just the first time. But they were involved in sexual immorality. It says that they ate and they drank and they rose up to play. That is a tasteful way to refer to gross immorality and drunken orgies. That's what was going on there. And you know what? Idolatry always leads to sexual immorality. You see that in the book of Romans chapter one. de godding God and worshiping created things rather than the creator will lead to a whole list of sexual sins and practices. Verse 8 says, Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 people fell. In one case, you read of Numbers chapter 25, where there was a trick that uh, Balaam tricked Israel into, that they slept with foreign women who caused them to worship their gods and it was so prominent in that in the nation of israel at that day that as the the leaders were crying out and sad over this sin they watched in their midst a man take one of the midianite prostitutes into his tent to fornicate with her right in front of everybody they're talking about this problem and they just watch it happen right before their eyes and it says that phineas the son of eleazar He rose up from this group of leaders. He took a javelin in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. And those who died in the plague that day were 24,000. Because of sexual immorality. The next thing that they erred in is that they tested the Lord. Verse 9 tells us, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. They tempted the Lord by complaining, by complaining and by murmuring. And we're going to see that in the next verse. And so the Lord let serpents rise up. They were destroyed by serpents. And the only way to be healed from the serpent bite was Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it up on a pole. And he said, if anyone will look to this bronze serpent, the Lord has said, you'll be healed. And people are like dying of, snake bite you know and they're like no way that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard i'm not looking at that thing and other people are getting healed and later on jesus says i was that bronze serpent it wasn't literally a bronze serpent that was a type of christ jesus was the one that would heal them if they would look at the serpent he says even as that bronze serpent was raised up so will i be raised up on the cross and anyone that would look at me would be healed from that. I'm not looking at Jesus. Sure got every type of STD imaginable to man. My marriage, I'm on my sixth marriage. I got this and that. No way. It's retarded to look at Jesus. Look at Jesus and be healed. There was a destruction if they would complain against the Lord. Verse 10 actually says that. That's the next error. They complained. And when they complained, they were destroyed by the destroyer. The word complain... Perhaps in your Bible it says they murmured. And Philippians tells us, do all things without murmuring and complaining. Murmuring is onomatopoeia. It sounds like it is, like crash, pow, murmur. Murmur, 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 We do that in the church. We murmur and we complain and it just lets this undercurrent of division take place. And that was what is happening. I have it marked in my Bible. There's all these... Uh, blue marks right here of every complaint and murmur and it's page after page after page of complaining. Audible displays of dissatisfaction. What a word to the Corinthians, what a word to us to learn. Are we grumbling about our home, about our circumstances, about our physical appearance, about our money that we make, about our job? If only God would let me live in another time in history Oh, those elders, this stupid thing they're doing with home groups and core groups and equip school and ministry. Hey, what do you think about it? I think it's stupid too. Let's just murmur, 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 murmur about it. Let me just tell you this. We don't have time to get into it, but the Old Testament says that when the people murmured against Moses, they murmured against God. Okay? When there's murmuring that goes on, God is not pleased with it, and destruction comes about. Contentment In all situations, like Paul could say when he was in prison, I'm content, that glorifies God. But a complaining spirit dishonors him. We need to learn from our history lesson today, you guys. And we didn't have enough time to read every passage about what happened. But verse 11 tells us all these things happened as examples. And they were written for our admonition or our instruction. At Dachau, the Nazi concentration camp near Munich, there's a museum of horror. Photos and relics document the atrocities done to the Jews. And there's a sign that's posted as you exit Dachau concentration camp. It says, those who do not learn from history are condemned to repeat its mistakes. And the same is true of the Christian life. Learn from our history. There's much more required of us because we had people that went before us that lived it so that we could learn from it, don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant. Scott, if you want to go get the worship team, bring them out. Oh, maybe they're, oh, they are in here. Cool. Um, You can come on up, uh, worship team. Like Paul was so, so afraid of, like the Israelites, just because they had this checklist of spiritual things that they did, we're told in verse 12 that there's a danger of Overconfidence. If you think you stand, Paul says, take heed lest you fall. Don't be haughty, don't be proud, but fear. What happened with Peter when the Lord told him, hey, you're going to deny me three times before this night is up, before the rooster crows three times. I would never. Do you know who I am? I walked on water with you. Right? You see that haughtiness? And what happened? He fell. The Proverbs tell us pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Paul was very right in having a fear. Man, I want to finish well. I don't want to act like just because I did all these great things that I'm just good to like, okay, now I can just like sin and do whatever I want. No, you can't. It's those that continue to the end that are saved. Those that continue to the end trust in what the lord has to bring about the victory alistair Begg says this in closing the more self-confident we become the less confident in god we become the more careless we are in our living as carelessness increases so are we more open to temptation as we are more open to temptation our resistance to sin decreases when we feel ourselves most secure when we think our spiritual life is at its strongest our doctrine at its soundest, our morals at their purest, we should be most on our guard and the most dependent upon God. Are you on your guard today? Are you dependent upon God? Is there anything in your life, anything that we were warned about today that God's pointing out that might disqualify you? Get rid of it. Get rid of it. A final word of encouragement is in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will be able will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That translation might say tested, and it might be better translated that as God tests us, He tests us, He doesn't tempt us. The book of James tells us that. We're tempted when we go after our own evil desires. But God tests us to make us stronger and stronger and stronger. And he says, anytime that you're tested, anytime you're tested in sin, with sin, hey, you can can overcome it. You can overcome it. God is faithful. There's a way of escape there that you might be able to bear that testing. It's like an Old West movie, you know, where they're down in the canyon and they're surrounded by the Indians, you know, and they're all going to die. They're totally surrounded. And then one of the scouts is like, I found a way out. It's this trail up the back. Let's take it. The Lord has that trail there. Look for it. It's a word of encouragement in the midst of all of this. You can close your Bibles and we'll just respond today. Lord, what a good warning for me today. Good to be studying this this week. Very sobering. Lord, that we might have an American heritage. In God we trust. One nation under God. We might have been raised in the church, have Christian parents. Maybe even were baptized and have taken communion, served in a ministry, helped plant a church. But Lord, if we give place in our life to lust, idolatry, sexual immorality, complaining, testing you, Lord. Lord, there's not hope there. So, Lord, I pray you would strike us with a very holy, reverent fear of the justice of God and the severity of God. Lord, that we might cling all the more to you. Lord, those that are super proud in their spiritual list of accomplishments, Lord, The warning is the most for them. Lord, that they might have somebody hold the ladder so it doesn't slip out from underneath them. Lord, bring those people into our lives today to hold the ladder, to hold us. Thank you for this promise, this encouragement that nothing we ever go through as far as temptation to sin is concerned, or testing from the Lord, temptation from the, the evil one. Nothing is too strong, Lord. We have the Holy Spirit in us to bring about the victory, Lord. We thank you for that way of escape that has so often come through a phone call from a friend or somebody dropping by or a sermon that came on the radio right when we were being tested, Lord, and it provided that way of escape. Lord, give us eyes to see the way of escape. As we close in song today, we're going to come to the communion table. We remember the communion from the Old Testament, the spiritual food, the spiritual drink. And today we take it, but we look backwards now. We look backwards. While they looked forward, we look back at what Jesus has done as he broke his body and he poured himself out unto death so that anyone who would Come to him and drink of him would have everlasting life. And today you can drink of Jesus. You can come to the table and take the bread and take the cup and confess your sins to Jesus. You and him, repent of your sins, get right with God. When you take the bread, you chew it and you think of how his flesh was broken and torn and ripped. your sins. When you take the cup, you drink and consider his blood that was poured out. Whenever we eat and we drink of communion, we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes.